I would like to introduce our next speaker. This is his second time speaking this morning. He's very boring, nobody really likes him, but we'll let him talk again. Um, his name is Dr. Zyrus, and he again runs the dermatitis clinic here at Ohio State University and has been seeing primarily, he's been seeing primarily dermatitis referral patients for the last eight years. Again, thank you and help me welcome him back to the stage. All right, so we are now going to talk about my favorite topic to talk about, and um, I think I probably last gave a version of this talk to you guys uh, maybe four or five years ago, so I'm sure some of you have heard it before. There's some new stuff in it. The way that I think about atopic dermatitis has changed some. Um, and again, these are just my favorite patients, and I honest to God mean that. I mean, and I want to say, you guys actually do a really good job here of bringing what I perceive to be speakers who talk about stuff that's hard to take care of, right? I mean, nails are something that most dermatologists and I assume most PAs are not very comfortable dealing with. Um, bad atopic dermatitis, contact dermatitis, just you guys do a nice job of bringing people to really try and um, improve the areas that are challenges for most, for most of us. So first, atopic dermatitis, right, my conflict of interest stuff, um, this is a, you know, the kind of list that a normal patient brings in. This is maybe a little worse than a normal patient for me. So, right, prescription, albuterol, uh, Olux, Allegra, Lunesta, Atarax, Vicodin, Oxycodone, Scalaxin, phototherapy, using Bactroban, hydrolated petroleum jelly, fluticasone ointment, hydrocort ointment, Temovate, Vanacream, and various lotions, a whole bunch of over-the-counter stuff has PRN prescriptions for prednisone, Keflex, ZPAC, Valtrex, Xanax, and trifluoridine eye drops for herpes keratitis. Uh, and in the last five years, has been on methotrexate, Celsept, um, Diflucan, uh, Amitriptyline, Effexor, Prozac, Wellbutrin, Paxil, Zoloft, right? Just a miserable person with horrible atopic dermatitis. Now, I'm not gonna stand here and tell you that yes, patients with this kind of a list walk in and I get them better in a month. No, I, these are patients that, um, th there are plenty of them that I have people on basically chronic prednisone for atopic dermatitis. Um, it, and that's one thing that I do want to stop back and step back and sort of um, say that very few people, whenever they lecture about atopic dermatitis, ever actually say. Some of these people have miserable, horrible, life-altering disease. And I will have a conversation with them after we've tried all the normal stuff and I haven't been able to get them better that says, look, we can um, keep doing the stuff we've been doing that doesn't work. Um, it'll be safe and you won't have any side effects from it, but you're going to have miserable eczema. Um, or we can put you on prednisone chronically. And I'll put people on 20 milligrams every other day um, would be an example of something that I have a number of patients on saying to them, look, we're taking a chance that you're gonna have a side effect from this prednisone, but if it makes your life livable, you know, maybe it's worth it. And that's a reasonable discussion to have with people, um, to give them the option, right? Whenever somebody walks in with pemphigus um, or lupus or dermatomyositis or some other horrible autoimmune disease, we don't say, well, here's topical steroids and you're not really gonna get better, but I don't wanna take a chance of giving you a side effect with prednisone. No, we, we treat people uh, aggressively, and it's reasonable to treat some of these atopics aggressively, okay? 
But so now, going through the way that I try to approach these people to prevent having to do that. So the first thing you've got to know, the fundamental etiology of mostly atopic dermatitis is in the barrier, right? We didn't used to know that, so 10 years ago, we argued maybe it's an immunologic disease, uh, primarily, that then gives you skin barrier problems. Maybe it's a barrier problem that then gives you immunologic problems. We now know for sure that it is a barrier disease that gives you some immunologic problems secondarily, okay? So barrier function, 80% of the predisposition to eczema is genetic. Um, Filagrin is the strongest influence on a topic risk of any gene ever studied. And in fact, filagrin has the strongest, a stronger effect on the risk of eczema than any gene ever studied for any disease, right? That's a pretty powerful uh, association, right? Now, we're not talking about Mendelian, you know, autosomal dominant and negative stuff. We're talking about if you look at the genes that have been associated with diabetes or multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis or, or hypercholesterolemia or anything else that's multifactorial, this is the strongest association of any gene for any disease ever studied. And so that's really where we started to, to change our thinking and say this is a barrier disease primarily, right? And so filagrin, right, initially two common filagrin mutations in Europeans, and, and I promise we won't talk too long about sort of pathomechanism stuff because it's not terribly fascinating, but it's useful to know because it does make you think about why you approach this disease clinically the way that you do, all right? So correlate with early onset atopic derm that persists into uh, adulthood. It's associated with asthma uh, in patients who have atopic derm, but if you don't have atopic derm, filagrin mutations are not associated with asthma, which is interesting. And we're finding that there are a bunch of other filagrin mutations um, that are, are common in other populations besides uh, Europeans. There's now filagrin 2. Right? There, it's still a developing story. So what is filagrin? Now this um, slide, I spent longer on this slide than any slide I've ever created in my entire career. And it very much is uh, based on, on a television program that apparently Mitt Romney would like to, to cancel. Right? So filagrin, filagrin, right? So this is where, <laughs> Thank you very much. That was the, um, so this is where filagrin comes from. And this is useful to know, again, just to think about what's this gene or what's this protein doing. It's a filament aggregating protein. So what's that mean? So basically, filagrin is made in the keratinocytes, right? And these are uh, uh, keratin intermediate filaments. So think of this, your normal keratinocyte in, the, in your skin, as being filled with pickup sticks. Okay, so little, think of these filagrin, uh, or not filagrin, these keratin uh, molecules as little sticks, okay? And they're just all kind of in there as a, as a big mumbo jumbo mess. Now, filagrin is in these keratohyaline granules. It then, whenever you look at it, it's actually made up of a bunch of individual repeats. It gets released, and then the individual repeats get uh, chopped up into individual molecules of filagrin, okay? Now, these individual molecules of filagrin love to play pickup sticks, okay? So that's the way that I want you to think about these. You've got this sort of uh, tangle of these keratin intermediate filaments, and then you've got to think back. To, I don't know how many of you played uh, any high school sports, but every high school coach that I ever had uh, loved the same thing, right? So the, the analogy that makes sense here, um, you know, if I give you a bunch of sticks, right, 
you're gonna, you and I say break these, and I give them to you one at a time. You can break every one of them. A stick is weak by itself. But if we take those sticks and we put them all together and we put a piece of string around them and they work as a team, they're much stronger and you can't break them, right? Every high school coach loves to talk about that. That's exactly what happens here. So these guys, which are not very strong individually, these filagrin uh, individual molecules line them up and get them into bundles that are now very strong and very rigid. Um, and these now give your keratinocytes very good physical strength. Okay, so that makes these into the quote bricks. This is why this is now a brick in your brick and mortar stratum corneum, okay? Now, after it, it gets them all bundled up, these molecules then get broken down into natural moisturizing factor. So natural moisturizing factor, uh, amino acids, um, and a few other things, but it basically acts as an osmotic, uh, osmotic force to draw water into your stratum corneum, okay? So that's the, the basic idea of, of filagrin and what it's doing. So natural moisturizing factor, it does several things. It, they're amino acids, so they're acidic. So they give you an acidic uh, stratum corneum. They retain water via this osmotic gradient, and the water and pH are, are crucial for a normal stratum corneum. So your stratum corneum normally, think of it as a sponge, a very thin layer of sponge that's been soaked in water, in a mixture of water and oil. So it's soft and smooth, right? Think about your, your wet sponge whenever you're cleaning up your kitchen. But then, it, and that's got the right, sort of your stratum corneum with water and the right pH. When it dries out and there's not enough water, think about that same sponge after it's been sitting underneath your sink in the cabinet for six months. It's rough, it's firm, it sort of cracks if you bend it. That's your dry, xerotic stratum corneum that doesn't have enough water in it, okay? Now, and then these, that water is also key for several of these physiologic processes, active proteins, proteases, that need to degrade your stratum corneum so that it flakes away nicely. And if it doesn't flake away nicely, then you get scaly, flaky skin. Again, kind of your dry skin uh, appearance. All right, so intercellular lipids, the other thing here, three key components, one to one to one molar ratio, uh, meaning there's one molecule of ceramide, per one molecule of cholesterol, per one molecule of fatty acid, okay? Now, ceramides make up about two-thirds of the stratum corneum by weight, and that's because they're much bigger molecules than our cholesterol or fatty acids. So it's kind of like, you can almost think of it as, uh, you know, an elevator that has uh, six people in it. You know, two little kids, two, um, you know, teenagers, and two adults. Well, there's one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio of kid to teenager to adult, but by weight, the adults make up a lot more of the weight of the people in the elevator, okay? So then ceramides, right? People talk about ceramides all the time. They're a big hot t issue now that everybody loves to talk about. What is a ceramide, right? So for years, I talked about ceramides and didn't know what they actually were. So ceramides, it's a long chain sphingoid, which is this part, basically means it's got uh, a, uh, an amino group, so a, a nitrogen and a couple of oxygens and a fatty acid, right? And so the fatty acid is basically a long chain hydrocarbon that's then got uh, a carboxylic acid on the end. And so you put them together and it makes a ceramide and you have 11 different classes of ceramides. And then in each class, you've got dozens, maybe even hundreds of subtypes. So depending on how long these chains are, okay? And that's now shown, been shown in the most recent study, the hottest thing off the presses in atopic dermatitis, is that 
it's probably the, the length of these that is the big issue in why atopics don't have ceramides that work, that their, their chains are too short uh, compared to non-atopics, all right? But there are over 340 different um, species of ceramide in the stratum corneum, all right? Ceramide classes one and three are the most important. So ceramide deficiency in atopic dermatitis, so especially ceramide one and ceramide three are deficient in uh, atopics. And the reason I talk about that is if, when somebody talks about ceramides, you have to think which ceramides. So just saying people don't have enough ceramide in atopic dermatitis and so we need to give them a moisturizer that has ceramides in it is equivalent to saying um, somebody with vitamin deficiency doesn't have enough vitamins and so we need to give them a vitamin. Well, you've got to know which vitamin are they deficient in, right? If they're deficient in vitamin D and you're giving them vitamin A, you're not doing them any good. Right? And it's exactly the same. You can think of ceramides very similar to the way you would think of, say, of vitamins. All right? So altered ceramide generation. So you can either break down your ceramides faster or you, can, or you can make them slower. Either way can lead to you not having enough ceramide. All right? So that is sort of the overview of what's going on. And now to talk about what does this mean clinically, right? So that's what, I was talk what I'm talking about with this is why do we care? So irritants in water penetrating the impaired barrier, the major focus, mild to moderate atopic dermatitis. Anybody ever tries to give you a lecture or a talk about mild to moderate atopic dermatitis, don't listen, right? Because you don't need to go to a talk about mild to moderate atopic dermatitis. These people do fine, right? You give them some moisturizer, a little bit of mild, mid-potency steroid, they do great, you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to go to a lecture to learn how to take care of them, right? So you avoid irritants, you minimize transepidermal water loss by using moisturizers, right? Now, the people who are interesting and the ones that are worth thinking about and trying to figure out how to approach are these people with severe disease. And in every adult with severe atopic dermatitis, what I want you to do when, they walk, when you walk into that room is think what protein is causing their atopic dermatitis to be bad? What is different about this person compared to the 80% of people with eczema who basically outgrow it? What's different about this person? Why are they having bad eczema whereas all the other people with atopic dermatitis outgrew it. What, and the answer is there's a protein, at least one, that is penetrating their stratum corneum and making them bad. And I want you to think, which protein is it? Because if you can figure that out, it then tells you how to approach treating them, okay? So proteases are one type, uh, and we're gonna talk about each of these individually, what, they, what clinically it looks like uh, and what to do about it. And so proteases cause itch and inflammation. They activate something called the protease activated receptor. They also degrade the barrier by chewing up the proteins in your stratum corneum. Superantigens cause inflammation. And then allergens via Th1 and Th2 mechanisms, okay? And, and maybe via IgE sensitization, although that's by far the least important out of all of this. All right, so uh, uh, just a slide that kind of goes over again the mechanism of all of this, uh, putting, putting all of it together. So you've got this barrier dysfunction. Right, which is initially a genetic thing that is filagrin and ceramides, right? So that's the fundamental problem right there. Your barrier dysfunction allows proteases, allergens, and, and immunologic stimulants to penetrate. And these proteases also make the barrier function even worse. Once these proteins penetrate, they activate the innate immune system, and you get these pro-allergic responses, right? The, the, Proteases also activate this protease activated receptor type 2. 
staph superantigens and, and other allergens, like on the last slide, cause this nonspecific lymphocyte activation. So again, the, just kind of the basic mechanism, right? So susceptibility to these proteins, again, what's different? Why is Mrs. Smith standing in front of me right now, miserable with horrible atopic dermatitis, and the other you know, people who had eczema when they were kids got better? What, what's different about her? Well, genetically, there was something that made her susceptible to a protein. Right, the, the levels of endogenous protease inhibitors, so you've got protease inhibitors in your skin to protect you. The, your T cell receptors, your IgE, uh, your ability to make IgE, and the pH and water content of stratum corneum, so maybe your natural moisturizing factor uh, deficiency. Right, so lots of different things that all sort of come together to determine who's susceptible to, to proteins penetrating their stratum corneum and who's not. All right, so what's the approach to these people? Like I said, I want you to walk into the room with a bad adult atopic and think what protein is penetrating your stratum corneum and making your eczema bad, right? So they're going to be environmental protease-driven people, and we're going to, like I said, we're going to talk about each of these, staph superantigen-driven people, malassezia allergen, and then there's also going to be a group that's just pure barrier dysfunction. These are people who just their barrier is so bad that they're dry and scaly and flaky, they are actually, they're not nearly as bad as the rest of these. These three are much worse. This one's by far the worst, but these people are not quite as bad and they're a little bit easier to, to treat. We're gonna talk about these pure barrier dysfunction people um, first though, because this, the way that we approach this, we're gonna do these things in all of these people, right? Because these people all have barrier dysfunction as well. They just have barrier dysfunction plus a protein, okay? So first, this is sort of your typical uh, pure barrier dysfunction, so very dry, very flaky, not a lot of inflammation here, right? This person's not particularly red. They were using, I think, triamcinolone and eucerin, I think. Uh, this was after we switched them over to a ceramide-containing product a week later, right? This uh, was a kid, again, kind of this barrier dysfu dysfunction, dry, scaly, not terribly inflamed. Um, again, a week after we, we switch them over to a ceramide-containing stuff. So pure barrier dysfunction, typical distribution, so normal, you know, widespread uh, elbow, backs of the elbow, or intercubital fossa, popliteal fossa, xerotic fine scaling, maybe worse in the winter. This is the one group that's worse in winter. So most of us are taught atopic derm, eczema gets worse in the winter. The other three groups all get better in the winter. They get worse whenever it's hot and they're sweaty. This group, though, does get worse in the winter uh, whenever it's drier. The actual thing that's interesting is I just told you the absolute wrong thing. Um, so it actually has nothing to do, well, it has very little to do with the dryness. So 50 years ago, maybe it had to do with the fact that it was humid in the summer and it was dry in the winter. Um, nowadays, how many of us are actually in non-climate controlled environments very often, right? We're always in heated areas in the, in the winter, air-conditioned places in the summer, the humidity isn't that big of an issue. What actually affects the eczema is the cold. So, th and, and I used to be, I used to sort of think, well, what the heck does cold have to do with any of this? It has to do with, think about butter, all right? The butter that's in your fridge. If it's in your fridge and you try to put butter on your bread, how well does it spread? It doesn't spread at all, right? Lipids are very stiff and very metabolically inactive whenever they're cold. Take your butter, set it on your countertop, let it sit there for a few days and warm up, and then try and spread it on your bed and how easy does it go on? 
goes on very easily. So the physical and chemical properties of lipids are very different in the winter. And so that's why eczema gets worse in the winter, because people are in a colder environment, not because they're in a drier environment. All right, so dull red are not very erythematous. So if, if the stratum corneum is like a brick wall, right, an impaired barrier can do to something damaging the wall, so inflammation, irritants, or removal of the mortar, um, or it can be due to something wrong with the wall components, bad bricks or bad mortar, right? So this is your nice, normal stratum corneum, right? This is your inflammation guy who's on the inside pounding on your wall with the sledgehammer, and this is your wall that doesn't have enough mortar and has bad bricks, right? So nice, normal wall, brick and, bricks and mortar, inflammation really damaging your wall, and then your wall that just has not enough mortar and, and bad bricks. One of the interesting things to take away from this, as you, as you can imagine looking at this, the wall that has inflammation damaging it is much worse than a wall that is just bad bricks or mortar. So this is why the inflammation part of eczema makes your, your brick wall much less effective because inflammation damages your barrier, right? So, and I don't do cosmetics. Um, I don't do any surgery at all. I haven't picked up a scalpel in years. Um, so I don't get to do any before or after pictures and I'm always jealous. So I always like to put this guy in, right? This is your before and this is what I want your, your, strat your stratum corneum to look like after, all right? So what do we do? How can we make the barrier better? We can reduce inflammation, right? So we, we're gonna take that guy and we're gonna get rid of him, right? So in today's economy, he probably already lost his job anyways. But if he didn't, we're gonna get rid of him, right? We're gonna reduce the inflammation, steroids, pemecrolimus, tacrolimus. We're gonna reduce the irritant exposure. These are the barrier creams. And what's the difference between a barrier cream and a barrier repair cream? A barrier cream, the cream is the barrier. And a barrier repair cream, the cream is making your natural barrier better. Okay, so that's the difference between a barrier cream and a barrier repair cream. So reduce water loss, replace the water, occlusive emollients, hygroscopic agents, those are things like urea or ammonium lactate. Hydrate the stratum corneum so you bathe. You can produce better bricks, there's nothing that does that. Or you can produce better or more mortar, and these are your barrier repair creams, okay? So barrier repair. The only approach that we have evidence for is for these ceramide-based products, right? And these are conceptually completely different from regular moisturizers, okay? And that's an important thing to tell your patients. So first, how are they completely different? So when we look at a non-physiologic lipid, so this is um, Eucerin, Aquaphor, Aveeno, Cetaphil, um, Lubriderm, Curel, whatever, right? You put it on and there's an immediate effect, right? You put it on and it makes your brick wall work a little bit better. The way that I want you to think about this, if you think about your stratum corneum as a brick wall, right, that's letting proteins through. This is like, okay, we've got that lousy brick wall that we showed you a picture of. We slap a coat of paint on the brick wall. Makes the brick wall a little bit more effective. It lasts about 20 minutes um, and doesn't really improve the wall at all, but it does something, right? So it's putting a coat of paint on, it does something immediately. If we use a physiologic lipid, it has to go through these metabolic processes and then it has a delayed effect where it improves the quality of the wall. So instead of just slapping a coat of paint over the wall, we're actually improving the wall. We're having a stonemason come out and you know, uh, tuck point your, your brick walls on your house, okay? Now, what are those metabolic effects? Well, it has to get absorbed through the stratum corneum, get internalized by the keratinocytes, goes into the Golgi apparatus, becomes part of the uh, lamellar bodies, and then rebuilds the stratum corneum, your, your brick and mortar. 
The reason that that's kind of useful to know is whenever a patient walks into you, whenever you walk into the room, and you're walking into the room of a patient with bad atopic dermatitis, you can, I can absolutely guarantee you um, two things. They've seen a lot of dermatology people already. Right over the course of their life, they've seen 10, 20 dermatologists easy. I can also guarantee you not one of those dermatologists has ever done anything to do any good for them, right? Because if they had, they wouldn't be in your office with bad atopic dermatitis. They would be doing better. So when you, the minute you walk into that room, they believe that you are not going to be able to help them. Okay, that's, you're walking into the room and they're basically sitting there not saying it, but you know what, I've been to 20 people. Nobody's ever done anything useful. You're not going to do anything useful either. All right. This is your chance to intervene in that and try and get people to say, okay, I'm going to actually do what you told me. Maybe this is going to help. And the exact phrase that I use is very useful. So, Mrs. Smith, you know, I, I bet you've been to a ton of dermatologists over the years. Oh, yeah, I've been, blah, blah, blah. and I bet nobody's ever really done anything that helped a whole lot, huh? No, no, no. We're going to do something totally different from what anybody has ever done. This is the moisturizer I want you to use. And it works totally differently than everything else. Everything else you've ever used was putting an artificial oil on the surface of your skin, trying to help it from the outside in. All right, so I just said a couple of important things. Artificial oil, right? Everything artificial is bad. Number two, we're treating you from the outside in. That's bad, right? We want to treat people from the inside out. So, okay, we, everything anybody's ever given you, artificial oil, surface of your skin, um, outside in, didn't help. Instead, we're going to give you something that will help your skin produce more of its own natural oil from the inside out. So now we've said, okay, artificial, outside in, that's why none of that stuff ever worked. Instead, we're gonna do more of your own natural oil from the inside out. And that resonates with patients, resonates completely. Think about all the people who come into your office. Isn't there something I can do in my diet? Isn't there a supplement I can take? Isn't there something natural I can do? Yes, I'm giving you something natural to do. We're gonna put ceramides on your skin, which is gonna, which is gonna help your skin produce more of its own natural oil. All right, so what might count as barrier repair creams? Things that have ceramides or pseudoceramides or pre-ceramides. Vino Advanced Care, Curel, Daily Therapy, CeraVe, Epicerum, Hylotopic, Hylotopic Plus, Restoraderm. And there's, there are gonna be more coming out on the market as well. Um, the, and these are just a bunch of the studies. And the reason I kind of throw them all up there on one slide is basically there's never been a decent study done with any of these. Okay, all of the data that we have that's any good was sort of done as basic science-y stuff. This is the one that matters, okay? And I don't put a lot of slides up of studies and results because basically they put people to sleep. This one is really useful for, for one reason, all right? So this was a double-blind controlled study. The white bars are normal moisturizer. Black bars are the exact same moisturizer with 1.3% ceramides added. The key thing to look at here, two things. One, when you added ceramide, it worked 10 times better than a normal moisturizer. Exact same moisturizer, you had 1% one one ceramide, 10 times better. Number two, it takes a week to see the difference. Okay, you didn't see any difference at one day, two days, three days. A week you started to see it, takes about a month to see the full benefit. The reason that is really important, never, ever, ever should you tell, give an atopic dermatitis patient three or four different moisturizer samples and say, here, here, I'm gonna put three or four of these in a bag, go home, try them, whichever one you like best, that's what I want you to use, okay? That is exactly identical to having an acne patient come in and you get a sample of Differin, a sample of Tazerac, and a sample of, of Retin-A, put all three in a bag, say, go home, 
put each of these on once, and whichever one clears your acne up, call me, and, and that's what I'm going to prescribe for you. Right? Just, just that's not the way it works, right? You got to use the stuff for six weeks before you see any benefit. You're not, if you give them samples of a ceramide containing product and tell them to try it, they're not going to see any benefit at all and they're not going to use it. Do not give people, if you care, so if it's just a normal high of kind of dry skin and you don't care what moisturizer they use, yes, just give them the samples, whatever. But if you care, if you want them to use a ceramide containing product, do not give them samples of several different moisturizers. Give them the one you want them to use and tell them to go get it because they're going to need to use it for two weeks before they'll see benefit. All right, are they all equally effective? We have no idea. There's no reason that they should all be equal. They, they, in fact, they definitely should not be equal. There's at least one that doesn't work. So now that there's the rule about if you do a clinical trial, you have to publish the results. The people who do the Curel um, uh, daily therapy, which has a pseudoceramide in it, did a study that proved that it doesn't work. Um, they were forced to publish it. They tried very hard to make it hard to find. So the beauty of PubMed, though, still allows you to find the Hong Kong Journal of Medicine, right? So this is where you put something if you don't want anybody to find it. But it, it, we know, for, so Curel Daily Therapy, we know it doesn't work. We know that certain ceramides, i.e. epicerum, the ratio of ceramide to free fatty acid to cholesterol is important. We know that for certain ceramide combinations, they work much better than, than any single ceramide. So specifically, that means ceramide one and ceramide three, when you put them together, are dramatically more effective than any single ceramide. So that is CeraVe. So CeraVe is a combination of ceramide one and three and six. And epicerum, their idea is it's the ratio of ceramide to cholesterol to free fatty acid. You can't, they're two totally, based on two totally different ideas. Talking about, um, you know, comparing them to each other is almost like trying to compare, um, you know, a, a benzoyl peroxide clindamycin product for acne to a retinoid. Both treating the same disease state, but totally different concepts in terms of, of why they were made. All right, so picking a product. So, if we don't know which one works best, how do we pick a product? So first, cost. Number two, a container that's big enough to be a moisturizer. These are not replacements for topical steroids. So this is, if it comes in a tube, it's worthless, okay? It has to be a moisturizer, meaning it comes in a bottle or a jar. Clinical experience, number three. So if we standardize this cost to a pound, right? So you want to get a pound of this stuff, right? Hylotopic Plus, about 800 bucks. Um, Epicerum, about 600. Aveno eczema therapy, Restoraderm, CeraVe, much more reasonable. CeraVe is still the cheapest uh, ceramide containing product that's out there. All right, at $16.99 for a pound, uh, it, it's by far the most sort of uh, the, the best cost proposition for your patients. All right, the other thing that's useful about ceramides, this was a study talking about physio physiologic lipids in steroid barrier impairment. So we all know about topical steroids, you put them on, right, if you put them on too much, they thin your skin, they give you stria, they cause acne, you know, all kinds of horrible things happen to people with topical steroids, which is a complete load of baloney. So it is really hard to ever hurt anybody with a topical steroid. So I, I, the biggest reason topical steroids don't work is because when we prescribe a topical steroid, we say, now put this on for two weeks and then take at least a week off, because if you don't, you know, you could have all kinds of horrible things happen to you. Nothing bad happens to people with topical steroids. It is really hard to hurt anybody with a topical steroid, even clobetazole. It's hard to hurt somebody as long as they're not putting it on their groin or their armpit, somewhere like that. Even the face, it's hard to hurt people with a steroid. Even the eyelids, it's hard to hurt people with a steroid. So don't um, prevent your patients from getting better by 
warning them too stringently about the side effects of topical steroids, all right? So the, the biggest side effect of steroids is that they impair your barrier. So they, in, with three days of use, so this study, the, the white bar here is you put clobetazole on for three days and then you damage the skin and you see how well it recovers. And it got about a 30% recovery in 24 hours, okay, when you put clobetazole on for three days before you damaged it. If you did not do anything, if you just put regular moisturizer on for three days and then damage the skin, it repairs about 80%, right? So almost three times more repair if you did not use clobetazole for three days. If you use clobetazole for three days but then put a ceramide on as well for those three days, the repair is even better than if you didn't do anything. So ceramides overcome the barrier defect that steroids cause. Okay, this is part of the reason, so this is the, a little bit of the yin and the yang of topical steroids. So we talked about inflammation is by far the worst thing for your barrier. So when you put a steroid on, it improves the barrier because you get rid of the inflammation. But it also impairs the barrier by inhibiting the metabolic processes of lipid production. And so what do we do about that? So now we're gonna talk some more practical stuff about what do you do with patients. So instead of, I haven't written a prescription for triamcinolone ointment in years, all right? So when I need a, a large amount of topical steroid, so a patient with bad atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, anything that I need, a pretty good size container, um, I compound clobetazole solution into a ceramide-based moisturizer, all right? I, I, and I don't have the pharmacy compounded because nobody's insurance pays for compounding, right? So if you try and have the pharmacist compound it, they're not gonna get it. So you prescribe them a 50 ml bottle of clobetazole solution just regular generic clobetazole scalp solution. Tell the patient to buy a jar of CeraVe cream. They go home, unscrew the cap from the CeraVe, unscrew the cap from the clobetazole, pour the clobetazole into the CeraVe, mix it up with a clean spoon, okay? Patient just self-compounded that. It makes, now there's 450 mLs in a, in a jar of CeraVe, there's 50 mLs in the clobetazole, so this makes exactly 0.005% clobetazole. This overcomes that barrier defect we just talked about. So now you're getting the yin, which is the benefit of steroids by getting rid of the inflammation, but you've gotten rid of the yang of the steroid impairing your barrier, okay? This is a class three or four steroid. Uh, there was a study done back in 1982 that showed that that concentration of clobetazole in ointment form is class three. As a cream, it's probably a class four. Uh, if I need something weaker, if I want a six or a seven, I use uh, betamethasone or mometasone for them to compound into the CeraVe, all right? So then the next question is, is how do I have them use this? So as you think back to the first couple of slides I showed you where the person brought in all of their stuff, very reproducibly, if you have this atopic who I've already told you has already seen 10 dermatologists um, who have all given them different topical steroids, and did, did those topical steroids include any instructions on them? No, they didn't. Every single one of those topical steroids says, use twice a day for two weeks, take one week off. Doesn't say how strong it is, doesn't say where to use it, doesn't say when to use it. So they now have a collection of about, most atopics, five to 10 tubes of topical steroid. Usually it's everything from desonide to clobetazole. Every single one of them has a sticker on it that says apply twice a day for two weeks, take one week off. If you just pull them out of the bag and say, okay, how are you, how are you using all these? Oh, I, you know, I just remember what the docs told me to do with them. All right, so what do you do with this one? Oh, that is the really, really strong one that I only use on my elbows and knees whenever I'm really bad, and it's the desonide, right? Then you pull out the next one. What about this one, and it's the fluosinonide? What about this one? Oh, that one is really safe. 
That goes on my eyelids every night for the last three years. Right? They have no clue. Every single one of them, exactly the same thing. Five to 10 tubes, they have no idea what to put on or when to put on, and they're just making it up. So what do you do? To make them become compliant, I actually will take their bag of steroid tubes and not give it back to them, all right? So I want them to never put any of those on again. I tell them you buy two jars of CeraVe, or if they don't have that much, one jar, and then you pour half of it into a Tupperware container. The jar, so, but if we do two jars, you take one jar, you pour your uh, all into it, you mix it up, take a black magic marker, write medicated on that jar. The other jar is just plain regular CeraVe, all right? And then every single day for the rest of your life, these are the only two things that are gonna go on your skin. That's it, nothing else. Anywhere that you have eczema that's itchy, red, bothering you at all, you put the medicated CeraVe. Everywhere else where you sometimes get eczema but it's doing fine at the moment, you put on the regular CeraVe. That's it. They can't screw that up. It's, it's very easy, it's quick, it's cheap, and it, it really works, okay? Um, it, it's not for your really, really bad atopics, it's not enough, I mean, that's not gonna fix them. But for your people with moderate disease, this will change their life, all right? It, it's incredibly useful. So we already talked about what that slide has to do with compliance. Optimizing showers. Is showering good or bad for atopic dermatitis? Give me a show of hands. Who says showering is good? All right, who says showering is bad? All right, so we got probably two-thirds said good, one-third said bad. Showering is very good. So there was a nice study out of Japan. Showering twice a day is significantly better than showering once a day. All right, you gotta apply a moisturizer right after you get out of the shower. You gotta remove chlorine and minerals from the water. Now later on, we're gonna talk about bleach baths and people usually ask me if I don't bring it up. Well, wait a minute, you're telling me to remove chlorine from their shower, but then you're telling me to add chlorine to their bath water. That doesn't make any sense at all. Is the chlorine good or is the chlorine bad? Okay, and I'm a big analogy person. So the exact analogy that goes there, if you have um, somebody who's got poison ivy, and you give them three weeks, so short burst of high-dose prednisone, does it help their poison ivy? Yes, right? Does it have any side effects that are significant? No. Same person comes in and instead, you give them 10 milligrams of prednisone and tell them to take it every day for the next 30 years. Is that gonna help their poison ivy? No. Are they gonna have side effects? Yes, they're gonna have horrible side effects. So it's the idea between short, short bursts at high concentration, versus chronic everyday exposure at low concentration. Two very different effects whenever we talk about chlorine. So how do you remove chlorine and minerals from the water? Right, so I usually start by asking the patient, do you have a water softener or a water filtration system in your house? Of course, the vast majority of people don't. And I say, well, great. Because then they're kind of like, oh, am I gonna have to get one? I can't afford what am I gonna do, right? You can get, for 20 bucks, you get one at uh, the Home Depot. All right, this removes chlorine and the minerals from the water. This is great, even just for your patients who have dry skin. This makes a dramatic difference in xerosis in general. Specifically, it works great for atopics. So 20 bucks at the Home Depot, remove chlorine and minerals from the water. Optimizing their laundry, you've got to ensure complete rinsing. So double rinse where you add vinegar, vinegar improves the rinse out. Uh, all Free Clear is the detergent that you ought to be telling all your atopics to use. It, it is different than the Tide Free Clear and the, all the other Free Clears. It has a specific mix of surfactants that's less irritating. Fabric softeners, might be good, might be bad. I tell people, meh, you know, play with it and see what you think, but the cool thing that's interesting now, they can't use, if you've now seen, there's some uh, fabric softeners out there that make your clothes smell good for six weeks. 
right? And so how in the world is that possible, right? So by definition, a fragrance is volatile, right? It has to be evaporating away. That's why we can smell it, right? So how in the world can you have a fragrance in your clothes that's gonna last for six weeks? And it is super duper cool how they did this, all right? So they created these little tiny balls. They're a little plastic capsule that when they're wet, they're flexible, like a, like a water balloon. Inside of the little plastic ball, there's a little drop of fragrance. When the clothes are damp and the balls are, are, are wet, they can get squishy and they get between the threads in your clothes. Once your clothes dry, the balls get stiff. And so now whenever the clothes move, the ball cracks and releases its fragrance. And so it's, as long as it's sitting in your drawer and not moving around, the fragrance is all trapped in the little balls. But when you pull it out and start to move it around, suddenly it smells good again. Right? So it's a very cool thing how they did this, but it's much, much more fragrance exposure than anybody's ever gotten from laundry products before. So you, you do want to tell your atopic specifically to avoid the um, sort of long-term fragrance uh, stuff that's in fabric softeners. All right, so vitamins for atopic dermatitis, another, this is another good one where patients are like, isn't there something natural I can take, rose hip oil or lavender or cattails or you know, donkey ears, something that I can do for my eczema that's natural, right? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, there is. You can take vitamins for your atopic derm. We have very good double-blind placebo-controlled randomized trials that vitamins work for atopic dermatitis. Vitamin D at 4,000 units a day uh, and vitamin E at 600 units a day. I typically have people do 5,000 of vitamin D and 1,000 of vitamin E. That's just easier for people to get at the store. It's cheap. For kids, I'll do half those doses, so 2,000 of vitamin D, uh, 500 of vitamin E. All right, and again, this, it's not dramatically effective, but it makes a difference and the patients like the idea that they're taking a vitamin for their atopic dermatitis. And this is actually why um, sunlight really helps with atopic dermatitis. Um, I'm actually far outside the mainstream of dermatology. I am a believer that sun is generally beneficial for people and that it, as long as you're not a, a, somebody who's at high risk for skin cancer, you should get as much sun as you can. Um, I, I'm way outside the mainstream, so don't tell anybody at the AAD that I said that, but it, it's definitely my take on the overall risk-benefit ratio, right? Sunlight has been shown to decrease your risk of diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and multiple types of internal malignancy. And so the overall, yes, it causes skin cancer, but it prevents other stuff. I, I always am just, uh, I'll get off my soapbox in one second. For God's sakes, for millions of years, we ran around at the equator naked as human beings. And now suddenly we've decided, oh, there's no safe sun. For God's sakes, we spent millions of years, like that's all we got was sun. I just, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. All right, off the soapbox. So that was all the stuff that you do for every single patient with atopic dermatitis. You get them showering twice a day if you can. You get the shower head filter on. You do CeraVe with clobetazole in it. If something cheaper than CeraVe comes along, you do that. They do now have generic CeraVe at CVS. It's definitely not the same as CeraVe, but it is cheaper. Uh, and I don't know if it's as good or not. It's definitely not the same, but it might be as good. Um, so you do the CeraVe with clobetazole, you do the showers with shower head filters, you do the stuff with the fragrance, and you have them start taking vitamins, right? Everybody with atopic derm, that's significant. You should have them doing that stuff. Now we talk about the people who you walk in the room and you're like, okay, what's the protein that's driving their atopic dermatitis? So this kid, Really bad on his face, so he's using uh, fluocinonide twice a day, face, neck, chest. Um, and you can see his atopic derm is coming down 
to his upper chest. And then he's got normal eczema below that, but his face and his neck and his chest are the really, really bad parts. All right, this is him uh, after we got him on effective therapy for his protein, okay, and off of topical steroids. This woman triamcinolone twice a day on her face for five years. This is her after we got her on appropriate therapy for her, a month, a month after we got her on therapy for her protein. This kid clobetazole twice a day, face, neck, chest. This is him at eight-week follow-up off of topical steroids being treated for his protein. So what's the protein in these people? In these people, so you always look at these people, that in, in distribution is key whenever you look at your atopic dermatitis patients. So what protein, what organism, so I'm gonna tell you it's an organism, is present from about chest up, right? Malassezia, right? So these people are malassezia driven. The typical story, they had eczema when they were kids, they outgrew it to a large extent, and then either as a teenager or in their 20s or 30s, sometimes even later than that, their eczema suddenly got horrible from about chest up, okay? They still have their regular same old eczema from here down, but chest up, horrible. Doesn't respond to topical steroids at all, miserable. These people are being driven by malassezia, okay? So uh, IgE and T cell reactivity to these malassezia proteins demonstrated a lot of different ways in research. A bunch of studies have shown that anti-malassezia therapy works great. So history of typical flexural atopic derm, offering, they almost all have asthma or seasonal allergies. Sebum production increases, malassezia increases. At some point, they become sensitized to these malassezia proteins. Okay, so these are just, people, whenever I talk about this often, um, are sort of like, I've never heard of that before. I think you're just making that all up. I'm not making it up. These are all references about malassezia driving atopic derm, this specific type of atopic derm. Regular atopic derm, nothing to do with it, doesn't matter. Head and neck, atopic derm, malassezia, okay? So what do you do for these people? These are so much fun to treat because I, these are the people who are in tears. This is horrible, I can't just do anything, my, my friends over there. And I tell them, you're gonna get better, I promise. You're gonna come back in two months and you're gonna be better. Um, it's one of the only times I ever tell people, you're gonna get better, I promise, all right? And so itraconazole, 100 milligrams twice a day for two months. At that point, they will be fabulous, the best they have been uh, for a long time. And then I'll cut them down to 100 milligrams twice a day on Saturday and Sunday. If I can't get itraconazole because it is too expensive, uh, even as a generic, I'll do ketoconazole, 200 milligrams, basically the same thing. Um, I will check LFTs before I start the itraconazole. I will never check them again because the risk that they will die driving to the lab to get the blood drawn is much higher than the risk that they're gonna have an LFT abnormality from the itraconazole. And I literally tell them that, right? So, and that's just in general. Whenever you're thinking about patients, especially your old patients, the more often you have them come back to the office, the more blood work you send them for, the more anything you send them for, especially if you live somewhere where there's winter, think about what you're doing. You're asking this 75-year-old guy to drive to a place he's never driven to before, and he's gonna drive there hell or high water. So it's snowing a day, he would generally never leave the house. He's now going out to drive there to get his labs drawn, to get his x-ray, to get whatever. You are putting him at significant risk for getting in a car accident, and I've had that happen to several patients. So that's why I'm, again, soapboxing a little bit. All right, head and shoulders as the body wash. Right, and it's got 1% zinc perithione. There's a, a product out there called Noble Soap that's a bar soap that has 2%. It's a lot more expensive, so I usually don't do it. Um, but the head and shoulders is their body wash and for washing their face. Maybe a role for azoles or Loprox. You can also use fluconazole here. 
There's not as much evidence for fluconazole, but you can use that as well. And same thing, every day for two months, and then you cut it back to being a couple times a week. So next type, all right, so the next type is somewhat distribution oriented, but more, there's no flaking here, right? Very little flaking. There's some moistness, there's some crusting, but it's not really flaky. This is her after therapy for her protein, right? Therapy directed at her protein. This guy, another example, he's got some flaking, but again, you see all these scabs, all of these uh, erosions, the fissures, crusting. So this, again, is a moist, weepy eczema, okay? Not so much that they, melt, they will have dry areas, but they'll have moistness and weeping. These people, this protein that's driving them is staph. So it's staph superantigens are driving their atopic derma. I was trained as a resident that you only treat staph whenever they're actively infected. Totally wrong. Completely, 100% wrong. Um, you need, to, in certain patients, you need to treat them prophylactically for staph to keep their staph populations under control. So why? How, what's the staph doing? So superantigens, staph isolated from atopics produces more superantigen and different superantigen than does staph isolated from non-atopics. And then MRSA. So who thinks that MRSA is uh, less common in atopics? Who thinks MRSA is more common in atopics? So as is the case with anybody who hasn't looked at this literature, you're all wrong. MRSA is much less common in atopics. So 80% of non-atopics have MRSA whenever we isolate staph. 10% of atopics have MRSA. All right, so now the question that everybody should be sitting there saying is, well, why the hell would they have less MRSA than non-atopics, right? I know that staph really grows well in atopics. Well, here, here's the story. It's all about competitive advantage. So if you're an atopic, when you're on antibiotics, the antibiotic resistance gene wins out. That gives you an advantage compared to other strains of, stra strain, yeah, strains of staph. But if you're a strain of staph that produces superantigen, you always have an advantage, right? So this guy wins over that guy in atopics. In non-atopics, you have an, a competitive advantage when you're on antibiotics, if you have antibiotic resistance. If you have superantigen production, you never have a competitive advantage because superantigens, which are proteins, cannot penetrate the skin of a non-atopic. And so they never get an advantage, so who wins here? In the atopics, superantigen production wins. In the non-atopics, antibiotic resistance wins. So that's why you get very little uh, MRSA in atopics. So difficult to control disease, moderate disease, with so two or three times a year their disease goes crazy, they need prednisone antibiotics and hospitalization. A couple times a year when their staph population goes up. All right, but their disease is pretty bad at any time, all the time, um, and it it's, can be any distribution, but it's moist. That's the key thing you want to think for these people. So bleach baths. Never, 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 ever tell anybody to get a bleach bath. All right, it's probably the worst thing that you can do is to say to a patient, I want you to start getting bleach baths. All right, now on the other hand, putting chlorine into water is just about the best thing you can do for atopic dermatitis. So where, you know, where am I going with this, right? So if you tell them to get a bleach bath, they believe it's gonna burn like crazy and that it's a pain in the behind, right? So who am I, 20, I'm supposed to get in, in, in the bathtub? I mean, I, can't, I don't have 20 minutes at night to get in the bathtub and it's, maybe it didn't burn all the other people like they're telling me, but they don't know my skin, it's gonna burn me. I don't know what this, this quack is doing, but clearly they do not know how to take care of eczema. 
all right? That's what they're thinking whenever you tell them, I want you to get a bleach bath, all right? So what do you do instead? You say, I want you to get in a swimming pool twice a week. The chlorine in the water kills the bacteria in the skin that helps your eczema. To which they say, oh, okay, I belong to the pool in the summer and eh, I guess I could join the Y and get down there a couple times a week. It's only a half hour away, so that'll only be maybe a couple of hours, a couple times a week. And, you know, I like to swim and it feels kind of good on my skin. And okay, I guess I can do that. Right? So now you've completely reframed the discussion. Right? So now they know swimming pools don't sting. Joining the Y is expensive and really inconvenient compared to getting in the bathtub for 20 minutes twice a day. So now's whenever you're like, you've got them now, right? You've got them. They're like, oh, okay, well, yes, you're okay. Oh, that sounds like it's going to be tough. <laughs> well, you know, I, I just forget about this because as a, as a dermatology physician assistant, I'm very wealthy and we all have swimming pools in the house. <laughs> Once I realize, I, I forget that most people don't have that. So, you know, you can make swimming pool water at home. Oh, what? How can I make swimming pool water at home? Just a little bit of bleach in the bathtub, right? Quarter cup, half tub, stay in there for 15 minutes. That's so easy and so much more convenient than going to the swimming pool. Now, a lot of people, whenever I give this little spiel, are like, I don't have time to go through that with my patient. This is much quicker than trying to explain to them that the bleach isn't going to sting whenever they get in the bathtub, right? This is a very quick discussion, right? So in the, in the office, oh, hey, you know, and I want you to get in the swimming pool twice a week. It kills bacteria on your skin. That's really going to help your eczema. Um, you know, are you able to get a pool twice a week? Well, I guess in the summer I can, oh, you know what? That sounds like it's going to be a pain. You can make swimming pool water at home. Oh, how do I make swimming pool water at home? Just take a quarter cup of bleach, put it in the half full bathtub, get in that twice a week. Psh, done. Takes less than a minute to have the discussion and they will actually do it. All right, and don't forget, they have to use freshly laundered towels uh, and sheets and pajamas. Otherwise, they immediately recolonize, okay? Eliminate staff carriage. I'll do antibiotics at least a month. Usually I do Keflex or doxycycline. Now, a lot of times whenever I say that, people are like, chronic antibiotics? Is that, can we use chronic antibiotics? Is that safe? Do any of you treat anybody with acne, ever? Right, we're putting people on minocycline for years. Minocycline is a really, really dangerous antibiotic. You get um, the autoimmune lupus stuff, you get pseudotumor cerebri, you get blue pigmentation. This is, not, this is what we do all the time in acne, but people are very nervous about doing it in eczema. You don't need to be nervous about doing it in eczema, right? I usually use Keflex empirically. Sometimes I use Doxy uh, if they're allergic, and I'll add Refamp in 300 milligrams twice a day for the first week. That's a relatively expensive drug, has a lot of drug interactions, so if they're an old person on tons of, on tons of other meds, I may not do the Refampin. Uh, I will avoid ointments. We already talked about that I don't use any ointments anyways. I have everybody use uh, the CeraVe with the uh, clobetazole, and I haven't put Neosporin up their nose. Um, Neosporin is more effective in my mind uh, than Mupiracin uh, for this purpose, right? There's about 30% of staph strains are Mupiracin resistant. I don't think Neosporin's good for treating impetigo, but I think it's very good for managing staph, staph colonization in the nose. And then finally, the last group of patients. Right, so these people have this inverse T-shirt pattern where their distal extremities, so it'll be their lower arms, their lower legs, oftentimes right here uh, where sweat accumulates, and then the neck and face. So this airborne pattern, right? And this is another kid airborne pattern. This is a woman airborne pattern. If we had her unbutton her shirt, we would see that her eczema basically stops right here. Right, so, and then this columella involvement is very crucial as well. That's very typical of airborne atopic derm in women. So these people, these protease allergens causing barrier dysfunction and itch independent of IgE, 
every allergen that's been studied is a protease, right? So the increased reactivity on Atopy patch test. So if we take these people with the airborne distribution and get some dust mite and rub it on their skin, it will cause a rash. If we get normal atopics who don't have the airborne pattern and we rub some dust mite on their skin, it will not cause a rash. So we, these people, we talked about the genetic susceptibility. Their skin is genetically susceptible to proteases, okay? So the proteolytic effects and the protease-activated receptor. Exam clues in men simulates a photodermatitis with his inverse T-shirt, and in women it tends to be more face, right? These people are miserable to treat. I have no, these are the people that I have on chronic prednisone. So I, I can think of three or four of them right now that I've got on 20 milligrams every hour a day of prednisone because I haven't found anything else that works. Um, so I will try and have them avoid mites, so dust mite, uh, mattress and pillowcase covers. Uh, you can get them cheaply at Target or Walmart, vacuum once a week in the bedroom. If I can get them to shower two, three, four times a day, that helps some, but it's hard to do. I mean, there aren't many people who are able to do it. Uh, for the facial dermatitis people, it's a little more reasonable to have them rinse their face three or four times a day. Uh, and then follow immediately, I use a low pH moisturizer because low pH helps to inactivate proteases. And so in these people, instead of using a ceramide-based product, I'll use something like ammonium lactate um, or the, the CeraVe SA that has salicylic acid in it. And that's, that's it. So before I answer some questions, again, just every single atopic patient who comes in, number one, treat their barrier, okay? So shower twice a day if they can, remove the chlorine and minerals from their water, um, have them use a, a ceramide-based product, and give them vitamin D and E, okay? Every atopic who walks into your office, that should be like a standard, every single one of them. Here, you can put it on a handout and you give it to them, all right? Those are the things that I want you to do. There's no reason to ever not do any of that in anybody. Then, if they have bad atopic disease, look at them and think, am I able to determine which protein is making your eczema so bad? Am I able to look at you and say, malassezia, staph, airborne? Am I able to subtype you and then direct my therapy at eliminating as much of that protein as I can? Okay, so that's the, the fundamental basic idea of how to approach these patients. All right, so that's it, and I'm happy to answer any questions. So for the malassezia, um, that's the first that I've heard of that, and I have a patient that you just kind of nailed on the, on, on the head. Um, am I taking him off of all of his steroids? He's, he's on a bunch of them, just yes. a whole bunch so, of different things. No, so first it's, it's going to take two months for the itraconazole or ketoconazole to work. Leave him on their regular eczema therapy until it kicks in. And you'll know that it's kicked in because their eczema will suddenly get better. Um, once they are better, uh, with the anti-malassezia therapy, they will sort of naturally just stop using their steroids. So they, and then what usually happens with these people over the long term, they do so well that they act, they, they, so first whenever you cut down the dose, they get a little worse, but it's still very manageable, nothing like it was. They do so well that eventually they stop coming in, um, then they, the prescription runs out, they stop taking it, about three or four months later their eczema comes back, and then we just start the whole process over. But I don't have any problem keeping these people on itraconazole or ketoconazole several times a week forever. They're, they're very, very safe drugs. You know, compared to a statin or a high blood pressure med or something like that, 
you know, because we as derms think about it, I don't want to keep them on this stuff forever. Well, atopic derm is a chronic lifelong disease, just like high cholesterol, high blood pressure, or anything else that people are on chronic meds for. So it's a chronic med, it's very safe. Yes? Do you, do you test spot them for Neosporin when you're gonna put them intranasally? So just about everybody that I'm seeing, uh, I'm, I've patch tested. So I have patch tested them for it. Um, the, probably the way, I'm trying to think how I approach it whenever I'm doing regular clinic. When I'm doing regular clinic, I have them just start using it, and I tell them if you start to get a bad, if you get a rash around your nose, stop. Um, it, it's, I rarely ever see problems from it, even in people who are patch test positive to neomycin and bacitracin. Um, putting it in your nose, the mucosal immune system is very different from the cutaneous immune system. So most of them don't have a problem with it. And the second question, uh, yesterday there was a study saying that using topicals once a day versus trying to use twice a day more compliance, do you, would you agree with that or just? Um, yes, so I, I, and there's very little evidence that twice a day, in fact, I think there's actually pretty good evidence that twice a day is not any better than once a day. Um, I'd say it's more for me a, um, the moisturizer aspect of it is what I'm trying to get. So with ceramides, um, we're not, so with, a, with an occlusive emollient, once a day, twice a day, doesn't matter because it doesn't help um, either way, right? It helps for 20 minutes and then, you know, if your patient wanted to stand in their bathroom naked all day, it would work very well, but they're gonna wanna put clothes on and that's gonna wipe it off and then it's gonna be gone and not do any good. The ceramide stuff gets absorbed, it increases production, uh, and we don't know how much ceramide you need to put on the skin to supplement their natural production. And so that's why I do, I go twice a day uh, with this stuff. Yes? Um, I've actually heard that um, combining the CeraVe with the clobetazole solution, um, actually somebody posed a theory that perhaps that it disrupts that one-to-one -one ratio barrier and actually the clobetazole can penetrate better than it normally would. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So it's an interesting question. So the putting it, so CeraVe, is not um, based on a uh, sort of a ratio um, as epicerum is. So I'm, but I'm thinking about it with, so I know people also are, some people are mixing it with epicerum. Um, it shouldn't really affect that ratio because if the ratio was three to one to one to begin with, um, you are not, uh, it's still gonna be three to one to one, just a little lower concentration. Now thinking about if you're talking about the one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio of ceramides to fatty acids to cholesterol in the skin, so that the ceramides are altering that uh, and allowing the, the clobetazole to penetrate better, um, I would say that doesn't intuitively make sense to me, but I don't know why this works so well. So it's certainly possible that that's what's going on, but it, I would say it shouldn't be what's going on would be the way that I would put it. Could be, I, I can't say, I, my explanation for why it works is basically one that I made up as well. Um, it's just one that I made up that makes more sense to me. Um, but it, it, that absolutely could be true that you get better penetration whenever you put it into the, cer into the CeraVe. It's an it's a interesting thought, I don't know. All right, well thanks everybody. I love talking to you guys.